Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrew, still available in all your finest retailers, and there's no better time to read a book than during a pandemic. <laughs> That's right. Now, uh, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. On today's episode, we're going to head over to the pub, cover all of the beer news that is to be beer newsed. We're going to go over to the brewery where, surprise, surprise, we're talking all the beers that we've been making because what else are we going to be doing? And Denny's going to talk about uh, some dry hopping techniques that he's just learned and played with. Yeah, I'm I'm real happy with it. It's kind of contrary to the conventional wisdom, but you know you know me. Mm-hmm. And you're checking it out. That's so, right. <laughs> and then in the lounge, we're going to sit down and talk with Kara Taylor from White Labs about a brand new Saison yeast blend that the company's released. And uh, see if, what we can learn, and then of course I'm going to report back to you guys later about well what exactly the yeast does. And and who would have thought that Drew would be interested in a new saison yeast? I know, right? Um, it's not like I went ooh new saison yeast. Can I please have some? Of course you did. <laughs> and then of course we're going to answer some of your questions. We're going to give you something other than beer and a quick tip and get you on your merry way. So sit back. But before we do any of that, here's some messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, an annual celebration of homebrewing and the community of homebrewers. This year's event takes place in Nashville, Tennessee, a.k.a. Music City, from June 18th to June 20th. Learn more and register at homebrewcon.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, and thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages. We're going to start with uh, a couple announcements, and the very first one is that we have a new episode of The Brew Files out, episode 85, and between The Brew Files and Experimental Brewing, that makes 200 total episodes that we've done. So we talk about uh, making beers for special occasions, uh, celebration beers, and uh, sometimes we're on the same page and sometimes we're not, but I think there'll be a lot of good ideas in there for you. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, if nothing else, you can hear our differing philosophies on, well, exactly what it means to celebrate something. So I I, I thought it was great, and we came up with uh, two recipes on the fly. Right. Uh, and we just have some fun with it. So go listen and get ready to celebrate, because celebration's good. <laughs> yeah, it's ready. Yep. All right. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA Amazon Brewers Friends or BIO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... 
It's called Not One More Vet, an organization that supports veterinarians who have a really, really high suicide rate. Let's face it, there's got to be a lot of trauma going on uh, taking care of our little furry friends. So uh, toss us a couple bucks and we'll toss it on to Not One More Vet and help support these guys. Yeah, And don't forget, uh, we just uh, did our donation, didn't we? Yes, we did. Uh, we finally made a donation to uh, Chat with Champs that you guys helped us with, and we donated nearly 1100 bucks to them, thanks to you guys. So we really appreciate it, and uh, in these days, doing good is a good thing. So please keep it up for Not One More Vet. There you go. Now it's time for a beer. Yes, it is. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Virtual Pub, and uh, have a couple beers. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back. We're in the Experimental Brewing Social Distancing Virtual Pub. We're 800 miles apart, which I believe satisfies the guidelines. And we're having a couple beers. And, uh, Drew, what are you drinking today? Well, I decided to go big and special, uh, because you know, why not? So I'm having a nicely aged 2017 Sierra Nevada Bigfoot. Mmm. Malty. Yeah, that's a great beer, man. I haven't actually thought to pick any of that up for the last couple of years. Yeah, well, and I think Bigfoot always, I mean, whenever I buy some, I, I always have some fresh, right, just to have that big sort of pine cone slap in the face. And then I'll, I'll lay it down for a couple of years in the in the beer fridge. And, and so I was uh, going and cleaning and reorganizing uh, just the other night, and I went, ooh, I still have Bigfoot in here. Yay! So now we're having it. I did the same thing with one of my North Coast old stock ales the other day, too, because it was a cold and rainy day, and I needed that beer. There we go. And what are you drinking today? Because I'm assuming it's not uh, old stock. No, it's not. Uh, I have a limited stock of old stock. I'm having a Deschutes Inversion IPA. Are you surprised I'm having an IPA? About as surprised as I'm going to have a Saison at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, 
ordered some uh, beer from the grocery store the other day for our normal pickup. Uh, they were out of the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale that I'd ordered, but they had Inversion. And man, this is a nice beer. Uh, malt is Turo, Munich, and Crystal. Uh, hops are Cascade, Centennial, and Azaka. Or Azaka. I have no idea how you really pronounce that. But this beer is like right up my alley. It is 6.8%. It's 65 IBU. There's a nice rich malt, but it's got uh, a good solid bitterness to it and a wonderful floral uh, aroma and, and flavor from the hops. Uh, I'm going to have to take a stab at making something like this one of these days. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. What what does Zaka give you? Uh, that's one of those hops I... I... No, I've I, tried, and I've I just never I've never played with it myself. Yeah, you know what? And I I brewed with it a long time ago, so I would, as I recall, it was kind of uh, a the typical fruity hop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we all know you love fruity hops. Well, you know, <laughs> it's not, but not fruity in a in a bad way. You know, it uh, not not so much of the tropical stuff. Let me. Uh, Hi, Alpha. Aromas of tropical fruits and citrus. There we go. Tasting notes of spicy mango, pineapple, tangerine, and pine. Yep, I can see that. And you know what? It's got enough of that other stuff to uh, really balance out the tropical fruitiness and really make that a, a supporting player as opposed to the defining player. Yeah, well, and I agree. I mean, it's part of the reason why I think, like, um, I don't really tend to like Galaxy a lot in beers is because everybody makes it, uh, well, everybody makes it the, the big star of the show. And to me, that that big fruitiness always overwhelms the other characters I want. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, a lot of those hops, at least for my taste, uh, you know, not everybody likes beer the same way I do, but a lot of those real tropical fruit hops, to me, come across way better when they're mixed with something else there we go now let's get into the beer news and we're going to go from my barley wine and your ipa to something non-alcoholic so you guys will remember we had athletic brewing company on the brew files uh, last year talking about their their non-alcoholic ipa and and other beers that they're doing by the way if you still haven't tried these uh, denny and i will both tell you they're pretty damn tasty yeah for a non-alcoholic beer this is about as good as it gets and so Athletic has has been based in Connecticut this whole time, right? So absolutely amazing. They're doing uh, gangbusters business, and they ship. You can since it's not alcoholic, you can buy it directly for shipping. Although rules may be changing right now about all that. Um, but they just announced that they have bought the former Ballast Point uh, Trade Street Brewery. So Ballast Point had a couple a couple different breweries around San Diego, and they bought the one uh, that was called Trade Street. It's an 80,000-square-foot uh, production facility, and they are now opening up a West Coast brewery for, for their non-alcoholic beer. And they also got an additional uh, $17.5 million of capital that was raised from the investment market. So that's not too shabby. They're they're growing like hell. Yeah, man. That, as, as well they should. You know, uh, like I said, uh, there's a definite market for non-alcoholic beer these days. Uh, not only does it not have alcohol, it's very, very low calorie too. Um, some of their beers are even gluten free. And, you know, it's, it's a really, really nice, I mean, their non-alcoholic IPA, uh, is really a surprise in a good way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they said they produced 10,000 barrels last year, and that was actually too little for them. They they were running 500% over what they thought they were supposed to be running. And so, yeah, the, this new facility will definitely help them uh, keep going. It is interesting to see non-alcoholic beer uh, taking off in this way because in times past, I would have never thought it would because most of it is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the antithesis of hard seltzer, huh? Exactly. Look, we made we made a soda that tastes like beer. Yay. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Now, in speaking of weird times and changes in the beer industry, our friends over at 21st Amendment have uh, put out a call. Uh, they've actually asked for the banks, so you know, a bunch of the big banks like Citigroup and J.P. Morgan and U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo. They've gone and basically said, put out there as a as a movement uh, call to action, as they're calling it, to put a 60-day moratorium on uh, principal and interest payments for small businesses during this whole crisis that's going on. Um, right, and, and uh, those those four that you mentioned already have, so right. they're like asking for other banks to do that. Right. And so it's really kind of interesting to see. Um, it could be a good path forward because obviously right now breweries are having uh, troubles making sure that they can get their beer sold. Uh, and it's also really good to see, you know, somebody like 21st Amendment, which I mean, remember they're, they're owned by a larger group now still out there, you know, making these sorts of moves that are actually mostly going to help businesses much smaller than them. Yeah, you know, and they say one month of bank principal and interest payments would cover 100% of our entire company's current monthly payroll. Uh, that that could be a very good thing in easing a lot of the uh, strife and stress that's going on right now. Right. And, of course, I mean, this is all unprecedented, so hopefully people will be able to figure out how to make it so that, yeah, we minimize uh, the damage to the people who bring us our beer and, well, in other industries, too. Yeah, um, unprecedented times call for unprecedented solutions, huh? Amen, buddy. And speaking of unprecedented solutions, Washington has uh, changed up their brewing game. The, the governor signed into law on uh, March 31st a new law that allows Washington breweries to do two things, one of which is to increase the number of tap rooms that they're allowed to have. So remember, satellite tap rooms are... Well, to say the least, a little controversial in the industry because one, they do give breweries additional revenue and additional marketing brand points and additional places to make, you know, larger money across the bar. Uh, but at the same time, that also then interferes with traditional taproom uh, sales, you know, so like, you know, your favorite local that's had all your breweries on forever. But now Washington's going to allow them to have four taprooms, I think the, the four satellite taprooms. Yeah, up from two to four. Yeah. So double, double the number of retail licenses that they can have. And the second one, and the one that's closer and dearer and near to my heart, they're going to allow dogs in the tap rooms. Yes, it says, nothing prohibits the owner of a licensed domestic brewery from allowing dogs on the premises of a retail liquor license location held by the domestic brewery under subsection 4 of this section. So, it doesn't say that you have to have dogs in breweries, but it says that there's nothing that prohibits the owner from allowing dogs in. And that's always a good thing. Yes. Although, at the same time, please, if you bring your dog to a brewery, make sure your dog is good with other dogs. And also make sure that your dog isn't running around causing mayhem. This also applies to small children. That's right. That's right, man. Uh, Dogs need to be as well behaved as anybody else in a tap room. (laughs) And no beer for Fido. <laughs> That's right. No beer for Fido. 
And then in our last piece of beer news for the, the week, this one's just hot off the presses as we're recording, Cascade Brewing, uh, which has been in business for 20-some-odd 20 years. years. Yeah, right. Uh, and it was, it was founded in 1998, and it's one of the first sour sour beer uh, brewing companies that I can really think of that was very exclusive, uh, just that idea. Um, they uh, they have sold. Uh, the owner, Art Lawrence, uh, he uh, has sold. And the good news, at least for craft beer-reminded people, is that he's not sold to another brewery. He's actually sold to a group of local uh local investors who already have sort of veteran experience in the brewing and taproom world. So kind of, kind of nice to see the, the, the company is kind of still staying true to its roots. It's really interesting to see what will happen. Uh, my one thing about the cascade beers is they're always super, they're super punchy, you know, a lot of flavor in them, which is kind of nice, but also super expensive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So, it's interesting to me to see what will happen there, see how the what the new owners will do with the company. But at the same time, it's also nice to see that uh, Art gets to have his uh, retirement, and we get to keep uh, Cascade uh, Brewing. Hooray! Hooray! I'm all for anything that gets somebody to retire. <laughs> yeah, not happening, buddy. <laughs> okay, maybe someday. Well, why don't we go talk about some brewing shenanigans? Yeah, uh, Drew and I have actually been brewing more these days, uh, and actually enjoying it more, too. So we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be over in the brewery talking about what we've been brewing. Stick around. We'll be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome over here to the brewery, and thanks for sticking around. If you do anything with our sponsors, please let them know that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. And speaking of brewing, we've both been doing more than usual. Uh, I'll let you go first, man. What have you been doing? Well, uh, I've been spending time out in the brewery because one of the nice things about having a house during this period is that uh, 
I have some spaces to play around in that the rest of the family isn't in. Hey, um, it's important to have your have your space. Um, and so I've actually been out in the brewery. I've been cleaning it up. I've been you know reorganizing and and you know cleaning out beer fridges and whatnot and discovering new things. Like I said, I found the Bigfoot the other day when I did that, and it was like, oh yay. Um, and so in the course of doing that, well, if I'm going to be in the brewery, I might as well brew and use some of these things I've been finding. So in the past, I don't know, actually really since the last episode, since we, since we were last talking, I did a Belgian golden strong off that yeast cake that I had from the Belgian blonde that I had done earlier this year. Um, I did the, the Saison that you guys are going to hear about in just a little bit when I'm talking with Kara about the new white lab Saison blend. And I did uh, a Tupelo mead with 11, no, actually, sorry, 12-year-old Tupelo honey. Whoa, really? Yeah, yeah it was the the last 18 pounds or so in a, or no, actually, sorry, the last 16 pounds in a 60-pound pail that I bought in 2008 and then made a bunch of mead with it and then promptly ignored the last bit of it. And so it's just been sitting in the garage. And the nice thing with Tupelo honey is it never crystallizes. So I'll include a link to a Facebook video that I put up of me pouring it, and you can just see this honey pouring out in a very satisfying ribbon. And So are we going to get a Van Morrison reference here? No. No, we're not getting a Van Morrison reference. We're oh, getting man, a- you just you missed something so obvious. Um, but no, so I did that and made that and cleaned up that bucket. I have a pint of the honey left. And the, the scary part to me is when I bought that honey uh, in 2008, it was $300 for the pail, and that was with the shipping from Florida. Tupelo honey can only be harvested, pure Tupelo honey can only be harvested in northern Florida and southern Georgia. And so I got it from one of my favorite apiaries over there in Florida and paid $300 for that for 60 pounds. I went and I checked today, and a 12-pound jug of the stuff is currently going for 160 so, <laughs> wow. Yeah, this stuff has become quite dear. So this is a, a, a rarity. And so I'm glad that I got to brew, uh, brew that up. And of course, making mead is nice because I used to make mead when I couldn't sleep at night. And it would take like an hour of physical labor and then I would be tired enough that I could go to sleep. So making mead is kind of a, a no brainer thing. I'm going to throw together a wine here later today because why not? Um, and then the last beer that, that I've made which is just about to you know, come out of the fermenter and perfectly segues into what we're talking about uh, with you, is I made a beer that I'm calling a real clusterfugget of a beer. Those are some great hops, man. I really loved them. Right. And so for people who don't remember, uh, last year, our sponsor, uh, YCH, or Yakima Chief, they, uh, they released a blend that they called clusterfugget. And it was a combination of cluster, fuggles, and nugget, and also a great name. And it is a really interesting smelling hop blend. It's it's definitely old school. It definitely has the, the fruitiness of the cluster comes through. And you get that pininess out of the nugget. And, you know, it's really kind of cool. But I did a pale ale where I, I bittered with Warrior. And then I did the Clusterfugget as a Whirlpool edition. And now it's been dry hopped with uh, Clusterfugget. And I'm following something that you discovered. Oh, yeah, the uh, new dry hopping technique, huh? Yeah, so 
Look at that segue. Toss. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if we talked about, I think we've talked about this article by BSG called reevaluating dry hop techniques. Uh, and I decided that it was time to put some of that into action. I had a beer. I think I maybe talked about this before my, my beer made with the rye middlings and my New Zealand hops that the guys brought over, uh, when mm-hmm. they came a couple of years ago. So, one of the sections of this article, and we'll, we'll post a link to it because there's a lot of really interesting uh, information, um, is that recent studies have shown that dry hopping cold for a shorter time actually works better than the way that uh, many people always thought of, like doing it, say, at room temperature for a longer time. So the the article here, just really briefly talks about how at 34 to 39 degrees, you can get maximum linalool extraction and in two days, uh, as opposed to like having to go a week or so. They say that linalool levels were the same in warmer dry hopped beers after two weeks. So in this cold dry hop beer, you can get the extraction in two days that you would get otherwise in two weeks. It also kind of reduces the... Uh, occurrence of hop creep or pretty much eliminates it which to me harks back to when i was trying to make hop creep happen and uh, i was keeping the beers cold when they were being dry hop so i wasn't able to get it there either well and just to refresh for everybody's memory who doesn't remember uh hop creep is that tendency for hops to also include a diastaticus or diastase type uh, effect where they break down more sugars or larger chain sugars into things that can then ferment. So hop creep can do funny things in your beer. And it was an old old thing that we knew about, everybody forgot about until everybody started dry hop the living bejesus out of all their beers. Right. And let me just state right now that just because you get foam on the top of your beer after you dry hop does not necessarily mean that it's still fermenting and you're getting hop creep. I've been trying to explain that to a guy all morning long. <laughs> but anyway, back to what I did. I had uh, about two ounces of these hops set aside for dry hopping. I had been cold crashing it in my conical fermenter for a few days. So I threw the dry hops right in there for two more days at 35 degrees Fahrenheit. And wow, I mean, Paula even noticed immediately what an amazing dry hop aroma it had. That beer has been kegged for about a week now, and it doesn't seem to be diminishing much. Uh, you know, that's an oxidation thing also, so I took care with that. But I got amazing results from it, and I'm so pleased that uh, I have an IPA in the fermenter right now. And when that guy is ready for dry hopping, I'm going to try exactly the same thing over again to see if I get uh, the same kind of results. Because as I say all the time, you know, it's not science unless it's repeatable. So uh, that's that's what I'm going to be doing, and you're going to be doing the same thing, huh? Yep. So I just threw in the cluster fuggets yesterday at 39 degrees uh, in my conical, and I'm letting those sit, and then I think later tonight I'll take a sample, see what I think, and then probably pull the beer and, and uh, take it over to kegs. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really amazing, man. I, I hope that uh, you get similar results as I did, because it's a, a really interesting way to do it. The other thing this article talks about that uh, really is going to take me 
getting into some more. Basically, it says that something that's often overlooked in all this is the impacts of hop varieties and addition timings. So depending on if your hops are higher or lower in geraniol or linalool or other things, there may be different times and temperatures to dry hop at. So, you know, like I said, that's going to really, really take some more uh, reading and experimenting on my part. But it's a really interesting article. It will change the way you think about dry hopping. And uh, we'll put a link to it on the website, experimentalbrew.com, so you guys can check it out too. Yeah, and I'll be curious to see what the cluster fugit does uh, with that. And because obviously different varieties have different linal levels, and that was the primary thing they were talking about with the with the cold dry hop. Right. So, and this also makes me think uh, if I'm going to do a New England IPA here, which I think I'm going to uh, shortly. I know. Um, <laughs> then I'll probably uh, I'll, I'll probably try doing that technique there as well to see if that changes also with the amount of dry hop that you have. Right. Uh, it, and one of the things that it mentions here is that because this goes so quickly, polyphenol extraction has been uh, reduced because the potentially undesirable polyphenols increase over time. So by doing it only two days, you get a reduced polyphenol load in the beer, and which really reduces the hop burn that uh, comes from a lot of those heavily dry hop New England IPAs and is one of the things I find most objectionable about them. So who knows, you know, maybe if uh, this becomes a popular technique, I'll actually end up liking New England IPA. Oh, my God. It might happen. Weirder things have. <laughs> and yes, so, so I think it's time for us to uh, go learn something about some yeast, shall we? Yes, let's do, because I know nothing about this, so I'll be listening to this uh, interview really, really uh, with an interested frame of mind to see what comes out of it. So uh, stick around. When we get back, Drew is going to be talking to Kara Taylor from White Labs. Y-Yeast is redefining wintry mix this quarter, so we invite you to toast these new exclusive releases as we head into the new year. An original from our early days, 1087 Y-Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend is being released for the first time ever to homebrewers. Look forward to the qualities of this versatile blend in your next British or American style ales. 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2 returns for its crisp, dry, and malty profile and the ability to produce bright bitters and dark ale styles. And if you're seeking a cold-savvy yeast for winter brewing, 2105 Rocky Mountain Lager is ideal for North American and light lagers. These Y-East Originals are released now through the end of March and are available for a limited time at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. It's just about time. It's just about time. 
Don't you think it's about time we talked about beer? Okay, this is the part where everybody sings beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome to the lounge. We're talking yeast today in the lounge and something very new and interesting. And since I don't know anything about it, Drew's going to take it. There you go. So White Labs uh, announced a brand new, um, well, a, a brand new yeast blend. This is very important uh, that we make sure people understand that it. it's a yeast blend. It's not a new yeast strain. But we had uh, all that news the other year about diastaticus, you know, that the yeast that can, well, it turns out, continue converting long-chain starches into sugars or simpler sugars that can then be, you know, chewed up and fermented. And that was causing issues in breweries with their packaging. So people didn't really have a good way to test for that, uh, whether or not one of these yeast strains was a diastaticus uh, strain. But what they've discovered is that there's a, a gene marker that's called STA1, and we've talked about it briefly on the podcast before. Uh, but uh, STA1, and that is a indicator as to whether or not something could potentially produce diastase. Um, not an indicator that will. So... White Labs apparently has been getting lots of calls to produce a, a yeast that can produce a Saison-like uh, flavor profile. Uh, so White Labs has been getting a lot of calls to produce a yeast or find some solution to get a Saison-like profile without running the risk of diastaticus happening downstream. Now, so this time they've released a, a new yeast one that's uh, WLP 561 non-STA1-SON, or STAZON, and I sat down to talk with Kara Taylor about it and about how it got developed and what people could expect. And like I said, I've got a beer actively fermenting with it right now, and it should be ready shortly. Cool, man. I can't wait to hear more about this. So let's get into this interview right now. All right. Well, hey, welcome back, everybody. Yeah. It's lounge time, and we're going to do some science and some yeast today, because why not? I think everybody saw on my Facebook uh, feed the other week, I have a lot of yeast to play with, but one of the new yeast strains I got uh, actually came out of uh, White Labs, and so I'm sitting here, and I'm talking with Kara. Kara, say hi to everybody. Hey, how's it going? All right, so what do you do for White Labs? Um, my current title is uh, Head of Lab Operations, um, and so... Right now, what I do is I sort of travel to all three of our labs, making sure that all of the yeast is being grown to our specifications, um, improving processes, working on new products and new strains, um, and then, you know, also just helping from a technical support side. Um, Yeah, pretty much what I do. (laughs) Making sure all the yeast are behaving themselves. Yes, correct, yeah. So how did you get into the world of making sure that yeast are behaving themselves? Yeah, um, how I got into this is kind of a boring story. I graduated in uh, 2009, which was probably the worst year to get a job, um, and it was a degree in biology. And I remember looking at White Labs and Y-Yeast, and I was you know, interested in homebrewing in college, and I remember looking at it and going, like, what are the chances of me ever working at these two places that exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up emailing them just like out of the blue and I ended up getting the job. So I started as a lab tech um, in 2009 
and then have just grown with the company since then, uh, the last, you know, 11 years. So it's been definitely a fun, fun ride. And, you know, I think we, when I started, there was probably about 25 employees and now we're about up to 150. So pretty crazy. Well, I mean, you mentioned, yeah, the bad time to try and get a job then, but good time to get into the brewing industry and the brewing supply industry. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty crazy, it was a pretty crazy time because I mean, it was, you know, the bottom of the recession, but and we were growing, you know, exponentially. We couldn't, you know, we were constantly trying to find more ways to push out more yeast. So um, very, very different, which is also, uh, you know, kind of similar to what we're going through right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, these are interesting times. Um, well, so with the world of propagating yeast and whatnot, What's something that a lot of brewers and homebrewers aren't thinking about, like, you know, that they don't think about what you do? I think um, something that most brewers and homebrewers don't understand is how much um, how how much sterility there is that goes into propagating yeast. Um, you know, we're not just boiling everything. We have these gigantic autoclaves and almost every piece that touches the yeast has been um, either gamma irradiated or has been um, not at our facility, but uh, somewhere else. And then, or we've autoclaved it. Um, and then I would say the second part would probably be aeration. So, you know, when you're thinking about making a starter or propagating yeast, you're just sort of thinking about making a, a small or a mini beer and then, you know, transferring it to maybe um, another beer. But when we're propagating, you know, we're, we're, um, we're feeding the cells a lot of oxygen and um, it takes a lot of specialized sort of equipment to, to be able to do that. So. Well, yeah, you, you have different goals. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Trying to make as much biomass as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as we've explained to listeners many times on this uh, show, uh, having good and healthy and viable yeast uh, and a lot of it, let you get away with a lot of sins at the homebrewing level, you know, in terms of what we do for our sanitation and, and our best practices. So thank you for, uh, thank you for making sure we get a sterile product. <laughs> yeah. And I like to say, you know, nothing is ever really sterile, right? It's, that's difficult, but um, we try to have some of the highest standards in terms of um, having other organisms that are basically, you know, any, any type of beer spoilers in, mm-hmm. in that product. So that you can have the the best outcome, and you know if you want to reuse it or you know save it for another batch, um, you've you've got a good a good product there. Yeah, speaking as somebody who you know has my little brewing area and is terrified to ever bring acetobacter anywhere near it, I can't even imagine what you guys are doing with all of that yeast and all that different uh, bio, uh, biology happening around you and keeping that stuff relatively clean. Yeah, it's definitely, um, we've learned a lot in the process and especially as we've done some of our own processes that the, the same cleaning procedures that breweries use are not always the same things that we can use because we have some higher tolerances. And especially when you introduce oxygen um, to the propagations where most, um, you know, in a, in, a bre- in a brewery or when you're home brewing, there isn't a lot of oxygen available for that for any organisms. And so you sort of deal with a whole other set of, of spoilers and, and organisms that, that show up. Well, there you go. Now let's talk about this new yeast strain that you guys have uh, put out there. 
and I think the the very first thing that we need to talk about because it is something that I think took a lot of people in the industry by surprise because they didn't really know about this, but uh, the whole diastaticus thing and um, you know, STA one. What uh, what is STA one? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, so STA one is referring to the gene. Um, that exists in some of these Saccharomyces cerevisiae strains, um, which are referred to as Saccharomyces cerevisiae variant diastaticus. Um, and so they're not their own um, species. So that's important to, to understand is that um, these are still Saccharomyces cerevisiae strains. Um, but the, they contain a gene that um, may or may not express itself to... Um, basically consume or break down um, larger sugar. So some of those um, uh, typically what we consider to be non-fermentables. And what um, what we have to remember is just because a strain contains that gene doesn't always mean that it's going to express it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, even if it does contain the gene, it doesn't always mean, or the, even if it does express it, there's going to be different levels that each of those strains um, it expresses that gene. And so right now there's still some, you know, research being done and being able to, to categorize those strains and saying, yes, this one, um, you know, expresses it a lot. This strain doesn't express it a lot. Um, so, or at all. Um, and so that's still sort of being worked on, but we can see it pretty clearly when we look at, um, something like Cezanne strains, when we look at all of the Cezanne strains that are traditional or classic from that region, um, they do contain that gene. And we know, you know, especially if you've ever played around with Cezanne strains, that they're not all created equal when it comes to attenuation. And basically what's happening there is that gene is being turned on or, um, you know, is being expressed in different uh, quantities. Mm-hmm. Well, and so... From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, basically it was once people figured out the whole thing about diastaticus, it was, okay, how do we identify, what's a quick way that we can identify strains that are potentially doing this? Because I think it was, there was no good way to tell beforehand or people weren't really, didn't have a quick way to tell them. So SDA1 is just a, a good way to say, hey, this may or may not do this, but it's at least potential. Yes, exactly. And some of them um, we see that have that, it just takes a really long time, but we'll eventually get there. And so a good example of that is um, the sac strain, the WLP644. That is an STA1 positive strain. Um, but, we, you know, if anyone's used that, you know, just in primary, it's a pretty slow fermenter, right? Mm-hmm. But if you left it for 30, 45 days, you know, you could end up with a really, really dry beer. Um, it's just, you know, it's just much slower at it. Um, versus something like I think you know uh, WLP five ninety French saison is is the classic like this will dry pretty much anything out right right yeah A- any of those French saison strains seem to basically be like give me all the sugar I'm gonna gorge now exactly yeah. yes exactly so that to me is like the the extreme of of strains that contain that gene and then you know WLP six four four the factois is like the the complete opposite end right. And I know, so for homebrewers, I guess diastaticus is less of a, a massive concern, you know, mostly because we're already dealing with enough stupidity that we're doing that a little extra sugar conversion isn't going to be a problem. But I, I, I know that because of that 
riddle factor, I guess, uh, the little wobbliness that diastatic has can in, uh, introduce, that's, that becomes a larger concern for commercial breweries in terms of stability and, and knowing when the beer is done, right? Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, this was probably happening for, I mean, this was definitely happening for people um, in, in breweries and they probably just didn't know it, right? Um, there are, I, I remember when I first started at White Labs, there was all these Siebel textbooks that I was going through. It kept referring to Saccharomyces um, uh, cerevisiae staticus, but I had never seen that. I had never popped up. And, and that's because the morphology, I mean, looks exactly like SACT. Um, and so it's really difficult to, to look at. From a homebrew standpoint, you know, I think um, the it, it is fine. You know, I think that your normal sanitizing procedures, um, you know, you if you're using Saison strains or using any of these strains in house with your with your equipment, I think you're you're probably okay. I think where breweries, you know, have some issues is when they they start packaging in cans and they're not pasteurizing. Um, which, you know, the majority of craft, craft brewers are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when it, it becomes a little dangerous. Okay. So now let's talk about the, the strain itself here. We've got uh, this 561, right? W, uh, WLP yeah. 561. And how do you say that? <laughs> oh, yeah. This is our um, sales manager came up with this, but she she's calling it a non-day-son Yeast. Yeah, so it was supposed to be sort of a play on words with the gene ins- inside the name. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, uh, we had come up with this because we kept getting requests for Saison strains that were not SCON positive, and we did not, I mean, they don't exist that we know of um, from that region. And so we were trying to come up with something. And so Toll Prowl, who um, is in charge of our Copenhagen facility. Um, he had come up with this blend, and so we had trialed it in house um, in order to sort of see how it how it works mm-hmm. well, um, with two two strains that do not contain that gene. Well, so I guess that's one of the questions I have. Then is so all right. I'm mean, totally get the motivation. Totally, totally get the the reasons for wanting to do it. How do you how do you find a blend of yeast that can give you that saison flavor and feel, but without carrying the, the diastaticus properties. Yeah. So basically we were looking for a strain that contained, that was estery enough. And then also one that would dry out the strain, would dry out the beer enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to sort of have those two things that are balanced. I would say, you know, personally, I think if you're a Saison traditionalist, this is likely not going to be your next, you're not going to be like running out of the store to to go buy this. Um, You know, I had a text this weekend that was like, should I do this? I'm making Saison next week. And I'm like, well, do you care about, you know, SA1 in your, you know, homebrew? Like, if not, stick with what you love. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this was designed for people who really just, um, didn't want to have wanted a little bit more peace of mind. Um, and while it's, you know, I'm, you know, if we take this to, you know, to, um, France or Belgium, like I think they'd probably be like, what are you talking about? This isn't a Saison. But, um, 
I I think that it it gives enough of that character um, to sort of replicate that that flavor and aroma profile. Do you have a sense of like how long it, you guys had this in development? Like how like how long did it take to go from well we need to do something for this, but what to hey we, yeah. we have a product. In terms of the brewing portion, um, that part actually was pretty quick. It was more about figuring out the proportion of the yeast and then um, the proportion of the blend. And then, but I, I really thought this would die down and people would stop talking about it and they'd just go, kind of go back to, you know, whatever they wanted to use. But we we, set, we kept getting uh, requests for it. And so therefore uh, we decided to go for it. I actually was, I thought we wouldn't even put it in homebrew because um, I was like, homebrewers don't care about this. And, and then, you know, Chris White was like, no, we have to put it in homebrew. We have to, because we always kick ourselves when we think that homebrewers (laughs) want to use something. And uh, they end up, you know, of course, homebrewers are the most experimental, right? So Mm -hmm. there's something new like this. They want it. Right. So. Uh, And admittedly for me, yeah, admittedly for me, the second I saw it, I was like, Ooh, I want to play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, that's that's what we do. Um, and let's face it, a good number of uh, craft breweries today, particularly like the smaller ones with the tap rooms, are are basically home brewers writ large anyway. So, uh, yeah, it sure. makes sense to also yeah. get that pre market education. Um, sure. Now, did you, did you guys? I mean, did you guys have any concerns about getting like? Yeah, the the that final dryness that everybody expects out of uh, out of a saison with this blend. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times, also when you're designing that recipe, you're designing pretty dry anyways, right? Um, in terms of attenuation, even if you added cal, it would, you you probably have a pretty high attenuation. But yeah, I think that was um, a concern for sure. I I think it's definitely been achieved. Um, you know, we brewed with it in our brewery, um, and I believe we were around, you know, high. I think we were in the low 80s potentially on attenuation. I'd have to double check, mm-hmm. um, but but I think it's um, you know I think it's achieved that in terms of the in terms of the blend. Right. Well, and I just uh, I just thought about this, but so since it's a blend of a uh, couple strains. How does that does that stay consistent if you're repitching over time? Yeah, that's been a difficult. Um, you know, I wish there was a little bit more research on how how all of that works out. I mean, I guess we do have research in terms of looking at how you know something that's a mixed culture ages over time, or you know, so ebbs and flows over time. But in terms of you know Saccharomyces mixed culture, it really depends on the strains because if they outcompete each other. Um, you know, we can definitely, you know, you can see that sometimes, but yeah, repitching blends is always difficult. Um, and we don't have a lot of breweries that consistently do it, um, you know, maybe once or twice, but you know, they're not using the same blend over and over and over. Yeah, I'll be curious. Uh, expecting if, the same results. Yeah. I'll, I'll be curious to see with this one, like if the idea is, you know, really to give somebody the ability to do packaged beer stays consistent you know it could catch on and then and then i think you'd find the information about how how well it stays yeah yeah i think um it'll be interesting you know just talking to a couple brewers that have used it one of the strains is not very flocculent and so um you might have some it might 
have difficulty clearing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is okay with the student, you know, in general, but it just depends on how much. Um, but over time, if you end up collecting, you know, from the bottom over and over, you know, the more flocculent strain that, that could eventually sort of, um, you know, overtake the, the mm-hmm. flavor aroma. Well, but again, I mean, like traditional Saison yeasts aren't exactly mass flocculators to begin with. So that's uh, at least on the clarity yeah. concern, that's not much of a problem. <laughs> yes, exactly. Correct. Yeah. All right. So yeah, unfortunately when brewers want to repitch it, yeah. you know, they, then they want it to flocculate. <laughs> and, oh, brewers, you have such conflicting ideas of what you want. Don't we all? <laughs> well, all right. Speaking of brewing, I mean, you guys usually, I mean, as you said, you, you've done brews with this in, in the in-house breweries. So do you guys have any, any tips about this blend? Like uh, ways to get the best characters or best expression? You know, I think, I think it really depends on what you're looking for from the, the Saison. But if you're looking for fruitier, I think, you know, obviously keeping it at the higher end of the temperature range and letting it free rise, mm-hmm. um, is totally okay. And if you're not, I would just keep the, the flavor. I would just keep the temperature, you know, down. So I would keep it, you know, very similar to you would for any other Saison strain. Um, I don't think there's anything specific for, for this one. I just find that, you know, just recently I was in the South of Belgium at the end of last year and I tasted so many Saisons and I was like, I don't even really know like what, what this style truly is because there's, so many different versions of it, you know? And so I think it really is about per- personal preference. And so obviously if you want more of that um, spice or, or fruit character, you know, letting it free rise. And if you want it a little bit more subdued, you know, temperature controlling it. Right. And and I always, I've recommended to people in the past, like with the classical Saison strains as well, they, they respond very well to open fermentation. Um, so I'll be curious to see. I'm doing it open uh, open fermentation right now because I'm putting it through my usual protocol just to see how it works. And on your on your fact about, you know, does anybody actually know what the style of Saison is? I always tell people, it's like, look at it. You know, you've got, here are your big three Saisons, right? The thing that everybody should think about in terms of, or actually, sorry, four, in terms of what a Saison is. And it, like you've got your DuPont, you've got your Phantom, you've got Blougies, and then you got uh, Therese in northern France. And I'm like, I defy anybody to find a concise and clear way to encapsulate all four of those under a single roof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I mean, it was so interesting when I was there. People kept saying, I was like, you know, what's your favorite Cezanne? And they, a lot of people said um, Duranque, which mm-hmm. I, was a great brewery. I loved it. But the Saison, to me, was nothing of what I thought a Saison was. And so it sort of blew my mind of, you know, how how different some of these, these beer styles are around around oh. the world. Oh, yeah. Well, and then, and then, of course, you get – then you get what we do with it, and, you know, that makes it even squirrelier. So. Yeah, we turn it to 11. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. So where can uh, people get 561? Yeah, so um, we release this strain in the in what we call the vault, and so that allows your homebrew store to um, order it if they like when we've released it. So 
you could ask for a home store um, if they have it. I believe probably, um, you know, our online providers, more beer will have some of it. Um, but, but yeah, you've got to ask your home store or you can also order from us, but I think it, I'm not sure how easy it is for, for a homebrew to do one single pack from us. Well, the vault actually made it relatively easy, so that's that's always nice. But I I do encourage okay. people to, I do encourage people to go uh, go explore what's available there because there's some interesting things in there. Um, well, so before we before we let you go back about your day, uh, making sure that yeasts are playing well. Um, any other any other comments that that were any other things that we should know about the 561 or about White Labs or the Vault or anything else? Um, I think just in terms of you know 561, I think what I would do what I would like to say is that you know I just think the diastatic strains aren't as scary as, as some people have gotten you know worried about them. You don't need to have it's not like Brett. They're not as hardy. They're just they're still Saccharomyces strains and. Mm-hmm. Your normal cleaning procedures are just fine. You don't need to have your own separate set of gaskets or hosing or those type of things um, like you like a lot of people like to do with bacteria or wild yeast. So I wouldn't um, fear that too much. Um, and I'm not sure when this is going to be released, but you know we will have um, a couple new Kvike strains uh, coming out uh, within the next couple of weeks, which will be exciting for homebrew also. Um, I know everyone, especially as summer temperatures, um, will be reaching and we're probably still going to be in our house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll be a fun thing to play around with. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think a lot of people suddenly have discovered they have more time to brew than they did in the past. Uh, do you know? Yeah, it, I mean, it's our homebrew number. We've had some of the best homebrew weeks we've had in years. Uh, it's crazy. Yep. Um, do you know what the uh, Vike strains are? Uh, uh, is it like Opeshog and... Oh, so that one is already out. Um, So we're we will have the um, the horn and ball. We will have the um, Stronda and the oh gosh, why are these all names escaping me at the at the exact moment? It'll be an email. (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure we'll put it online, and we'll make sure to share it with the listeners as well. Um, Yeah, sure, that'd be great. Well. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I, I appreciate you talking us through. I'm excited to see what what the yeast will actually give, or I guess the yeast will actually give. And I will have notes on that probably in the next week. So, yay. Cool, I love, great. I love new toys. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Well, I hope that you guys enjoyed hearing about this new yeast blend and also hearing about how the yeast blend came about. I think there were some really interesting things in there. And like Kara said, I mean, it's this is more of something for professional breweries and production breweries that are worried about packaging and canning as opposed to us home brewers. But as Chris White uh, said to her, uh, well, you know, it got to make sure it makes its way to the home brewers because we're out there doing weird things. And also, I want new toys. So... <laughs> Thank you to uh, thank you to Chris, thank you to White Labs, and thank you to Kara for not only getting me the yeast, but also sitting down and talking about it because it's good to learn from people who actually know what they're talking about. Oh come on, why don't, why don't we want to start that now? <laughs> Always want to start something, buddy. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, 
So we're going to take another quick break here, and when we come back, we'll have some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other before we get you on your merry way. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. We're about to get things wrapped up here. And to do that, we're going to start with some questions and answers. And the first one comes from Rick Brunus. Uh Rick, I'm sure that we probably screwed up your name there. But uh, anyway, Rick says, my head on this Lachouf clone breaks into weird, dense clumps. Foam breaks up a bit. Thoughts? Strong head at pour, force carved. Right. So th- these are the notes from a very long Facebook conversation that Rick and I have been having. Basically, he's got a Lachouf clone that he made, and it gives a very strong pour when he, when he's pouring it out, and gets them to this weird sort of dense foam that is almost like islands of you know meringue. And then over time, like say twenty minutes, those islands break up and everything goes to looking like normal foam. And so in the talking of uh, talking about, it, I have my theory. So the part of the reason the question's here is so that Denny can give his theory too. My uh, my theory was he said he force carved it and he did the uh, rock and roll method right you know so high high psi you know for a short period of time violent carbonation. My guess is actually because of the fact that he's doing uh, a beer like a Lachouf, he's probably got enough protein left over in the beer enough heading protein and it's pouring in such a violent way that it's basically whipping on the way out of the out of the siphon into the beer glass and over time the albumin relaxes and that's why the foam collapses back the way it does. So my guess would be a very strong carbonation, a very violent pour uh, along with the ingredients are causing this to happen. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's something like that for sure. I, I've had this happen a few times. It doesn't seem to affect the beer negatively in any way. Uh, it, it does seem to be on beers with a higher protein level. The other thing, I mean, I don't know if this really relates, but one thing I've noticed, like when I'm doing a boil during the batch, if I totally have my pH nailed so it is like right on the money, I get a huge white head of foam uh, from some of the malts that have higher protein levels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Do you think there could be any relation here? There might be. I mean, I've, I've seen the exact same thing that you're talking about with um – uh, the Skagit Valley uh, malt yeah. from uh, that Tony gave us, and that 
in the boil or in the boil and in the mash recirculation throws a, a hell of a head when the pH is correct as well. So yeah, it could be. Um, but I'm I'm guessing again. Yeah, we've got a high protein level, so like wheat and whatnot, uh, in the beer, a high carbonation level, and then a violent pour, and you get just like you were doing out of a whipping siphon with whipping cream or egg whites. There's a reason why I think it looks like uh, meringues in the glass. <laughs> yeah, you know, it it does look really, really interesting and strange. But like I said, I've never found it to negatively affect the beer in any way. So I just kind of go, oh, look at that. Well, but I mean, it is interesting. And it's one of those things where you want to go, wait, should it be doing that? So a good question. If you guys out there have additional theories, please let us know, because I would love to know. That's my best guess as to what's going on. Yeah, and, and it is it is strictly a guess, so who knows. And our next question comes from Peter Wallstrom, who writes in, Hey, uh, Denny, I'll, first I'll come out and say that all of my brewing experience is on Pico Brew equipment, so I don't really know where to start trying to figure out what, where my issue is. I've now brewed 22 times on my Z, and with the exception of one recipe, which I've brewed three of those 22 times, I've come consistently across two issues. My OG is always 10 to 20 points lower than the recipe crafter estimates. With the exception of beers fermented with Y-Yeast 3787, my fermentations always hang at about the 1030 mark, and I have to use Clarity Firm to get them to drop any farther. Thoughts? <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, Peter and I have actually exchanged several emails and ideas about this. Um... One thing that stood out to me was that he was kind of doing a standard water treatment, whether it was a light beer or a dark beer, which makes me wonder if his pH was way off for one or the other. It's it's hard to imagine pH being far enough off to cause a 20-point discrepancy. But, you know, uh, like I said, at, at this point, we're guessing about things. So uh, I directed Peter to brew and water, gave him some tips about how to use it. He was not at all aware that there should be a pH adjustment between light beers and dark beers. Uh, we discussed crush, and that seems to be okay. And the fact that he's had a few beers come out on target uh, makes me makes me really kind of get back to water again. You know, it seems like it was the darker beers that came out well. So maybe his pH is way too high for the lighter beers. You know, I don't know. But we've started a dialogue, kicking around some ideas about what it might be. So we'll update you guys as this goes on to uh, let you know if we come up with anything. Yeah, I don't know. Anytime anybody says 10 to 20 points, that immediately makes me think that you've got something going on with your crush yeah. or your water levels. Yeah, I agree, man. That's that's like way, way far off to be only pH related. It, it's got, I mean, pH can figure in, but it's got to be something else. So I think that we're just going to go through a step-by-step -step process of elimination. There you go. Yeah, because, I mean, the other thing I would also think is that you have too much volume, right? You know, too much water, and therefore you're, you're, you're diluted down. But in the Z, that's kind of hard to do. So yeah, yeah, and, and he didn't allude to that being the case either. But uh, as the, as the dialogue continues, I'll uh, I'll get that in there and see what he has to say. All right, there we go. And our final question comes from uh, Bjorn Bjornsson, who said who had started a whole conversation about using sodium metabisulfite and ascorbic acid and other uh, items to control downstream oxidation characters, mostly to try and preserve the hop aroma in his New England IPAs. 
And so there have been a few people writing about doing sodium bisulfite and ascorbic acid, aka vitamin C, to do that. You know, that's also kind of akin to the old school technique of using cinnamon uh, as an antioxidant. Because that's what, I mean, they both have antioxidant uh, characteristics. And so the idea is, oh, if you do this, then you can preserve hop character away from oxygen damage that will occur in packaging. And we also got to talking about Brutan B. So this has two parts. One, I can't answer the sodium metabisulfite and ascorbic acid question because I haven't played with it. So if you have, please write in. You know, I've played with ascorbic acid. I can't really tell you that I saw any change whatsoever. Uh, maybe that's because I'd already oxidized my beer so badly that there was nothing ascorbic acid could do for it. Uh, I see. I mean, it depends on when you want to use the the sodium metabisulfite. Uh, I see many, many recommendations saying do not ever put it into finished beer because the sulfite load uh, would really make the beer undrinkable. I haven't done that myself, so if any of you have direct experience with that, we'd love to hear from you. Right, and for the record, I mean, like sodium metabisulfite, for instance, is used in the wine industry to preserve your wines which is the reason why every time you ever see a wine, it says down the bottom, well, okay, everything except for natural wines. Uh, most commercial wine that you'll get will have a warning down the bottom that says contains sulfites, uh, and that's why. But it, in order to actually really get the preservative effect, at least as I'm thinking about in wine, it also needs to be combined with a lower pH in order yeah. to be truly effective. So it, Because you have to have so much sulfite disassociate and become free SO4, and that requires a lower pH, and we're talking wine pHs here, so like three five. Right. Um, yeah, I have I have absolutely no personal experience, and uh, my advice comes from uh, a discussion on the AHA forum where a number of people had related their experiences with uh, using sulfite in a finished beer, mm-hmm. uh, and that was pretty uniformly no, don't do it. So if anybody has other thoughts on it from having done it, uh, please let us know. Yeah, and then as the conversation went on, we also talked about Brutan B. You guys remember we have talked about Brutan B in the past. Uh, Denny, I mean, you use Brutan B all the time, right? Yep, I do. And Brutan B is a uh, a long-chain polyphenol. It's a tannic acid. And the whole thing is it's basically supposed to be a, a – well, it's a different sort of antioxidant, right? You know, it basically stops the uh, free radical formation and helps stabilize uh, things. So you get less oxidative reactions happening. And so we actually wrote to uh, Joe Formanek with Anjanomoto USA. Uh, Anjanomoto is the company that brings out Brutan B, and they also bring out Tanil A, uh, which is going to fill into part of his answer here. And I asked Joe, would Brutan B have any, any power in terms of helping preserve uh, hop aroma? Uh, particularly in a New England IPA, and he said, if Brutan B is used as a water treatment before mashing, it can help maintain the hop character. There is simply less oxidative reactions occurring, less free radical formation, resulting in a stabilization of flavor components like hop flavor. Just don't use it as a kettle-finding agent in a New England IPA. Uh, had someone do that before? Oops. Not cloudy. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, and since Bjorn's in, in Norway, he wasn't sure if we could get it. And Joe pointed out that it should be available in Norway because it's made in Belgium. So uh, also, interestingly, uh, Brutan B does have a counterpart, and I mentioned it earlier, uh, Tanil A. And Tanil A is another tannic acid compound sold by Anjanomoto, and it actually is a haze inducer. So if Brutan B is about stabilization and clarity, Tanil A is the exact opposite and will make something stay very hazy. 
I would suspect that's part of the trick for how you see some of these beers like uh, Hazy Little Thing and other sort of big brewery packaged uh, hazy IPAs that are out there in the market. This is part of the reason why I think they stay hazy. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I've never talked to anybody who uses it for that, but that doesn't mean that they aren't. Nope, that's true. But I just thought that was uh, interesting. So there you go. Uh, if Again, if you guys have any suggestions for answers on any of these questions, you know, Rick's whipped, whipped uh, meringue head, uh, Peter's uh, low OG and his Pico, or Bjorn's use of sodium metabisulfite and ascorbic acid uh, to preserve his hop character, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Okay, and I guess it's time to move on to the other wrap-up stuff, huh? And we're going to start with a quick tip from Drew, and apparently he has just gotten dentures. Well, I haven't gotten dentures. What I've got is a denture brush. And I got this denture brush in, like, the weirdest way possible. When I bought my house, the denture brush was in the garage, in the sink. And it's stayed there ever since. And if you don't know what a denture brush is, it's literally, it looks like an overgrown toothbrush. Except for it usually has two heads. So it's got one side that looks very much like a a regular toothbrush, uh, although bigger. And then it has the other side, which has this sort of spiked, narrower brush. And... Lo and behold, that damn thing's a whiz in the brewery. Gets into all those small little nooks and crannies to to clean things out, almost like it's designed to do that. That's that's really cool, man. Yeah, and they're not very expensive. So if you don't have one because your previous house owner didn't leave one in his shop, (laughs) go uh, go and buy one. I think they're like five bucks. (laughs) And it turns out, you know, I'm a big fan of having small little brushes of all sorts of sizes. Because small little brushes are very handy. Yeah, man. You know what? I have uh, like a like a dish scrub brush out in my garage for using and brewing that has like a smaller side on it, and that can be really handy. So uh, I guess maybe I'll have to pick up one of these denture brushes next time I venture out to the drugstore. Yep, there you go. And nobody's even going to look at you funny. They might look at me funny if I bought a denture <laughs> brush. Hey, I'll have you know these are all my teeth. <laughs> Uh, all bought and paid for. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah, I, and again, I like having an assortment of cleaning tools because it does get in handy, particularly with all of our equipment that has all the nooks and crannies out there, more so than a Thomas's English muffin. <laughs> That's great. And, of course, we can't leave you without leaving you with something other than beer. Consider this your pop culture you know, rescue form. Uh, I've got something this week. Denny's got something this week. Uh, mine is... I'm revisiting a series of books written by an American science fiction writer named Connie Willis. Uh, Connie Willis has been around as a force in American science fiction for ever, since the 60s, I think. She wrote a, a series, I think it's four books in total and like a couple short stories, that have been known as the Oxford Time Travelers series. And started with a, a, book, a short story called Firewatch, actually, and then became a, a book that was called Doomsday, and then, you know, a book called To Say Nothing of the Dog, and then a, a back-to-back book, uh, Blackout and Aftermath. And they're all about these historians in Oxford who know a way to time travel. And so they, they use time travel to do various bits of research. And so Doomsday Book has a has somebody going back time back in time to England during the time of the Black Death. And but the one I'm reading right now is to say nothing of the dog, which was the second book in the series, because it's also the one that's the most comic and it involves a misplaced cat that's fallen out of time 
Victorian love affairs and punting down the Thames in Oxford. Oh, and uh, spiritualists. Don't forget the spiritualists. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a science fiction farce, and so in, in you know it's a a nice good laugh during the, uh, during this time, something that we all need. And uh, Denny, you have something else that isn't necessarily a good laugh, but it's also British. Yeah, it is, man. Um, we just recently uh, subscribed to both Acorn and BritBox because we just needed more viewing stuff. Because having thousands and thousands of choices already wasn't enough, I guess. But one of the things that uh, made me do that was that there are Monty Don shows on both of them. And on Acorn, I ran across a show that he does called My Dream Farm. Now, if you've been listening, you remember that uh, Drew and I were both fans of Big Dreams, Small Spaces, uh, a show that Monty did about people putting gardens into their backyards. This is more like Big Dreams, Big Spaces. Uh, Monty has apparently been involved in farming for, well, 40 years, and this series was from 2010, so I guess that'd make it 50 years now. Uh, the first episode that I watched, he goes to visit a family who had moved from Holland to uh, Great Britain uh, to run a farm. They were raising pigs, sheep, uh, bees, uh, something else, and they were trying to figure out how to make a living. And in his inimitable Monty Don style, he uh, helps set them on the track to uh, making making money from their farm. He uh, hooked them up with some people who could help them sell the products that they were coming up with. And let's face it, it's Monty Don. Watching Monty Don just makes me happy. <laughs> well, certainly, it certainly gives you more inspiration for what to do with your, your big estate there in Oregon. Well, you know what? I, I don't think we'll ever get livestock beyond the chickens we've got. We considered that years ago and decided that we were tied down enough already with uh, five cats, two dogs, five chickens, and fish and the other stuff. But it, it's really interesting, again, to see him helping these people out. And to me, what I really like is that Monty Don is a good guy. And these days, I need to see more good guys. There you go. I'll take it. And so you can get that via, you said, BritBox and Acorn? Uh, yeah. Uh, Acorn is where uh, I'm watching my dream farm. They have a number of other Monty Don shows there. And right now they're running a 30-day free trial, which is even better. And you can always inst install that on your Rokus, on your Apple TVs, on any sort of streaming device that you may have hooked up to your TV. Or, of course, just use it on your laptop. Yeah, I uh, I have it on my Fire Stick. Uh, I also have the app on my tablet that I can Chromecast onto the TV. So there's a number of ways you can watch it. Yay, streaming. <laughs> Yay, streaming. So I guess that means it's about time to move on, huh? Yeah, but it's about time for us to finish this puppy so I can go back out to the brewery. All righty. Well, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our writings and adventures by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. 
And don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out a lot on the AHA discussion forum. You can find Drew in the Homebrewing subreddit and on the Slack Homebrew channel, among other places. And, of course, you can always ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave by emailing us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And you can get a hold of each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. The phone number here is 626-765-1AL. That's 1253. You can call us and leave us a voicemail. You can leave us a text. Uh, you can, you can try waking Drew up at three o'clock in the morning, but it won't work because he'll always be up. It's true. And you can always find us at our website, experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. And hey, bonus points to anybody who wants me to start a TikTok channel and get Denny on it. TikTok?